Father God, we thank you for your word. It is holy. Uh, we thank you for what it shows us. That it is life and illumination. It is joy. It is satisfaction. It is instruction. It is reproof. It is doctrine. Father, we ask now that as we, as we look at your word, Father, that you open our hearts and minds to receive from you. Let our hearts be fertile ground upon which the seed of your word can be planted. We give you thanks and joy for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Has anybody, I wonder if you've ever read in your Bible, um, once or twice, read in your Bible, and, and you come across something and you just go, whoa, I get it. Just like a light bulb goes off. And, and, and at the same time, you're, you're, you're crushed under the conviction of, of, of it because all this time you didn't get it. And all this time you, you were doing it wrong. And, and at the same time, you, you feel a whole lot of, of relief and, and freedom and, and joyful gratitude because the eyes of your soul have been opened. Your understanding has been opened. Anybody? That happened to me several months ago. I had a, an aha moment, just a, a crazy, oh my goodness moment. Now, I've only spoken about it to a few people. I've shared some insights with a small group, and it, it caused no small stir there. People don't like it when you talk about this particular subject, especially in the way that I was speaking about it. They don't like it when you challenge the prevailing cultural wisdom on this particular subject. I didn't like it either. It completely shook me as I fell under the conviction of the Holy Spirit for all the times I had misapplied the scriptures to justify my thoughts and my attitudes and my actions in this area. For months I have been wrestling and reading and studying and praying and seeking God for clarification and, and for correction. I've read books, more than one. Multiple books, I've read scriptures, I've, I've listened to teaching, I've tried to come to terms with this new and different understanding. If you've been listening to me for any time at all over the last year or so, you will know that joy is a big deal for me. You could say that I am very serious about joy, and I am. I believe it is the bedrock for loving God and loving others. It is foundational to the life that is in our faith. The good works that are born out of a faith that is living joy is the root of all of that. Having this particular light bulb go off for me has increased my joy a hundredfold. And I intend, by the will of God and the grace of God, to take you on that same path so that your joy may be full. If your journey is anything like mine has been, it will not be comfortable. You will have to ask yourself some very hard questions. You will have to make some very difficult decisions. Difficult only because the lure and the gravity of the things of the earth are so great. They are so appealing to the flesh. But once we change our perspective by the power and the grace and the mercy of the Holy Spirit and our perspective shifts from the here and now life to life everlasting, you will find that the difficult questions weren't so difficult and the difficult decisions weren't so difficult. It has taken me 
on a trip. God has taken me to his threshing floor and he has shaken me violently to separate out the wheat from the tares. He has cut me deep to prune away dead branches. I have spent time in the crucible of his fiery furnace to burn away the chaff. None of those things were comfortable, church, but all of them for my good and my increasing joy. If you were wondering, why didn't he just go out and say what he's talking about already? And many of you may be. I will tell you that I am purposefully being cryptic about the subject. Because this is a meal that is not easily eaten. And if I bring out the main course before your appetite has been properly whetted, you will just turn away with disinterest. I must lay some groundwork, some foundation. In the parable of the builder, we are warned by Jesus that unless a house is built upon the solid foundation of Jesus Christ, it will not stand in the storm, and great will be the fall of it. It is critical that we come to some basic understandings first. Otherwise, you will dismiss what is coming in the next few months as craziness, as overzealousness. You will say in your heart, I know it says that, But it doesn't really mean that. You will excuse and justify sin and selfishness in your own hearts if we do not do the necessary work of cutting and laying the foundation. So over the next couple of weeks, I want to dig down to the bedrock. We will be in a short series that I called Breath of God. And there's a reason for that. It has been said that if we really believed this book, I've said it, if we really believed what was in this Bible, we'd be different people. We'd act differently. We'd certainly talk differently. We'd spend differently. We'd work differently. And we'd play differently. If we really, truly believed what it said. And I believe that statement to be true. If we had perfect faith, we would be perfect people. Jesus had perfect faith. He had no doubts about the Scriptures. Jesus believed them wholeheartedly. If God said it to him, Jesus took him at his word. He didn't have any questions about it. He didn't have any any reservations about it. He certainly did not manipulate the Scriptures. He was a perfect man with perfect faith. Let me give you an example. You know, everybody knows what the speed limit is. Right? We all know the law that says you cannot exceed the limit that is posted on the sign when you're driving. We all know that if you break the speed limit, you have broken the law. And there are consequences for that. For breaking the law, you get a ticket and you must pay a fine. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, though it's a pretty short limb and it's a very thick limb. I feel confident walking out on this limb I'm going to go out on this limb and say that most of you who are of driving age, maybe even all of you who are of driving age, have knowingly at some point and deliberately at some point broken the speeding law, maybe even on your way here this morning. Why? Why? You know it's against the law. You believe that. You know that if you get caught... You'll have to pay a fine, and you you believe that. 
but you don't believe that you will actually get caught. See, the Bible says that God sees everything. He knows your heart even when you don't. He sees you even in secret. The secret things that you think you're keeping hidden, God sees it. So there, there is no such thing as not getting caught by God. God catches everything. He sees everything. You're not getting anything by Him. But we don't really believe it, do we? We either don't believe that He actually sees or we don't believe that He actually cares. Even though the Bible tells us, His Word tells us that He both sees, in fact, and cares, in fact. How do I know this? Because I know that if you're doing 75 in a 65 and you see a cop car up on the hill, the first thing you do is slam on your brakes, and very closely followed by a prayer that, oh God, please don't let him have catched me, caught me on his radar. (laughs) Get me out of this mess I got myself into. I know, I've been there. Because we can see the policeman sitting in his car, we know, we now believe that we're going to get caught. And we adjust our behavior accordingly. So it really does boil down to, do you really believe what this book says? Do you really believe it? And that poses a great big question. The grand question. The the great question. Can the Bible be trusted? Now you'd be surprised at the number of professing Christians who do not trust this word. who will take pages out of it and then say it doesn't mean that, or that was an error, it shouldn't be there, or we're going to read this part and exclude that part because it doesn't apply, you'd be amazed at the number of professing believers who do not believe the word. Can the Bible be trusted? Should the Bible be trusted? If I'm going to have to change the way I talk and the way I act, the things that I pursue, the the joys of my heart, because the Bible tells me so, then I want to know what authority the Bible has to tell me so. Is it just some other book or is there more to it? Why should I believe what this Bible has to say about anything any more than I believe any other literary work? What makes this special? In our part of the country, in the cultural climate that most of us live in here in the northeast part of Texas, we have not had to face many challenges to our faith. We live in the Bible Belt, in the rural Bible Belt at that. Most people in the rural Bible Belt at least profess to believe that the Bible is true even if they have no idea what it says. So living a free life that is free of material challenges to your faith is great. It is a peaceful life until your faith is materially challenged. I remember when I was young, you know, so much of my faith growing up I just took for granted. I am grateful for parents who raised me in the fear and admonition of the Lord because it gave me a great starting point, a solid foundational starting point. 
But I confess to you that I took most of what they taught me at their word. It's because this is the way, because mom and dad said it was the way. And they told me that they said so because this is what God said. I, I felt no need to go to the Word for myself to find authority that was higher than what mom or dad said. That was enough for me. I had no reason to doubt them. But later in life, when my bubble of experience began to expand beyond the little town that I grew up in, and, and I met other people from other parts of the country who had other ideas and other convictions, people who really challenged my faith, I found that I could not stand on mom and dad said so. I needed something with a bit more authority. Forgive me. I needed something with a bit more meat. Because mom and dad had taught me that the Bible was their authority. That's where I went. And that was all fine and good. Until the authority of the Bible was questioned. Until someone challenged me on why the Bible had any authority. Well, I've just always believed it. Mom and dad said it. The preacher and the Sunday school teacher said it. But I didn't know why. That was not going to be a sufficient answer. Especially in situations with unbelievers whose lives are in bondage to sin. We are dead in our trespasses. Dead in our sins. I better know this word if I'm going to bring life to somebody through it. I remember a conversation that I had with a friend of mine when we were in high school. She was dating a guy and she had been dating him for quite some time and things were getting serious with him. And I remember talking to her about it and uh, she shared with me that their times together had been increasingly intimate. And I saw red flags. I saw warning signs. I was raised a certain way. And so I wanted to tell her there's, there, there's danger ahead. And so I did. I said, listen, you, you've got to be careful. I said, you need to draw a line and not cross it. You both need to keep yourselves pure until you are married. Those were my words to her. And her response to me was, why? Why? Why should I do that? It feels good. I want it. So why should I do what you say and deny that? Dismissing me. She, I, I told her, I said, uh, when she answered, asked me that question, I was stunned. Because uh, I, I just said, well, who, who would, did, weren't you raised to, to keep yourself? Because I was. I thought everybody was raised to keep themselves. So she said, why? And I said, uh, 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 because the Bible. And then she just kind of dismissed me and said, well, the Bible says a lot of things. And it does say a lot of things. But that was the end of that. I didn't have an answer for her. I could not tell her why we should trust the Bible. Why? What did the Bible have to do with your life? Why? Because the Bible said it doesn't make a hill of beans of whether or not you live it. So that's the road that we're going to take today. That's my 2,000-word introduction. Can the Bible be trusted? So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now those of you who have been in the faith all your life, you may be thinking, this is elementary. Uh, yeah, it is. 
I thought it was elementary growing up. The Bible is the Bible. It's the true word of God. But you'd be surprised when you get challenged by it how ill-equipped you are to answer that question. So I want to equip you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul is writing and he says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now that phrase, given by inspiration, that comes from one Greek word, theopneustos. It means God-breathed. Theo, which is God, where we get our word theology, the study of God. And pneuma, which is wind. When we studied the Holy Spirit a couple of years ago, that was a very important word. The pneuma, the Holy Spirit is described as the wind of God. Which brings me to reason number one, why we should trust the Bible. Why we can trust the Bible. It is God-breathed. In fact, the, the English Standard Version translated that all Scripture is breathed by God. So every word of Scripture was infused into man by God, the Holy Spirit. And man set pen to paper under that same divine inspiration and wrote what we know as the Bible. Just as God spoke in creation, let it be, and creation was, God is speaking in Scripture. He opened His mouth and the Scriptures were given. All Scripture is the breath of God, the Word of God. This is what we believe. There is not a word in this book that is there by accident. There is not a word that is there that is out of place. It is all the voice of God spoken with the authority of God for the revelation and the glory of God to the joy of all people everywhere. When you read this Bible, you're not just reading any book, church. Though common words are used, they are not used as if by common men but by a very uncommon God. The ruler and creator of the universe, the Alpha and Omega is speaking. He is God alone. None like Him, none beside Him, no equal, infinite in majesty, power and glory. The great I Am is talking. Is talking. Too often we approach this text with nonchalant attitudes. We don't revere it for what it is. God has spoken. God has spoken. The creator of the universe has spoken. I don't see enough awe in your eyes. Some of you are sitting there looking at me like I'm saying something that you are. This is nothing new. This is magnificent news. God, your Alpha and Omega, your Father in Heaven, your hope for glory has spoken. When you read it, when you come to this text, when you read this word, God is speaking. There is no greater authority, no higher truth, there is no deeper understanding than what is given in His written word. Quit looking to mystics. Spiritual people. They say a lot of things out of their mouth. Does it line up? With the written word. Because if it doesn't, dismiss it. There is no higher authority than what God has given us in His written word. He has said so Himself. 
This is the very breath of God, yet we dismiss the parts that don't line up with our own ways of thinking because they make us uncomfortable. Or they make no sense to us. Even though the word that we dismiss tells us that it is higher than our ways and the thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It is perfect and sure and the wisdom of man is foolishness. We come to difficult passages that seem to ask too much of us. Passages that ask more of us than we are comfortable giving and we just gloss over them or we dismiss them as being out of time and out of touch. Can the word of God be out of touch? The grass withers and the flower fades, but my word is forever. We set ourselves up as the final arbiter of what is true. Well, that doesn't sit well with me, so I'm going to sit on the throne of God in my life and I will declare truth to be whatever satisfies my own desires. It sounds so scandalous in a Christian setting, but that is exactly what we do when we approach this sacred book with anything less than complete submission. When we decide and we declare that it must not mean what it says, we have set ourselves up as gods and kings. And the book, if you've read it, tells you that every kingdom of this world shall fall before His glory. Every house built upon that sandy foundation will tumble and great will be the fall of it. We must come to this text eager to learn, eager to submit, eager to be changed. Folks, I pray every day before I read the Bible, God, wash me by this word. Give me ears to hear, eyes to see, wisdom to understand. Change me. Transform me into the image of your Son. I want to be changed by the word because I believe in my heart that it is the voice of God speaking through eternity to me. Our approach to this book needs to be one of deep reverence, an earnest desire for the truth that is in it. Some people will say, but the Bible was written by men. Men make mistakes. Men are not infallible. That is correct. The Bible has 40 physical authors, all moved by one divine author. That will come into play in a minute. You will see this in the text when you read it. Different writing styles, different styles of argumentation and presentation, even different approaches and perspectives all throughout the 66 books in this Bible. But that is not an argument against the authenticity of God's voice in the Scriptures, not in the least. When you consider the vast span of time over which the Scriptures were written, 1,500 years And the number of individual people writing the scriptures who lived in different places in different times through the rise and fall of different empires in different cultures who never met each other, who never had a conference with each other, who never sat down to say, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? Let's put this in or let's keep this out. And yet to produce a unified, cohesive narrative that is over 783,000 words long. That is nothing less than divine. Are you not in awe of this book? My Sunday morning sermons are usually about four to 5,000 words in length. And I'm the only one writing them. And I have difficulty maintaining unity and consistency in my own thoughts. 
Forget about if I had to do it with 40 other people trying to get their input in too. And yet we have 783 plus thousand words, unified words, words that do not contradict. A cohesive picture, a unified theology. Over the span of 1,500 years of human history, through, through different cultures and different times and different empires and different governments and different settings and different geographical locations. One unified text. Amazing. 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 Yes, men wrote the scriptures and yes, God wrote the scriptures. Every word, every jot and tittle as it is written, was breathed by God into the hearts and the minds of faithful men to record God's revelation of himself to us for all time. Reason number two. Number one, this is the breath of God. Number two, there's the logical reason. There's more, but I've only got time for two today. There is no middle ground. The Bible is either completely true or it is a fallacious lie. An elaborate, beautifully written, total lie. Now turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Here, Peter is writing at a time when the truths of Christianity are already being criticized and they're already being questioned. There are those people, prominent people, who accuse them of just making it up. They're still around today. Many scholars who believe the Bible is just one long lie. Really a a really creative and clever and complicated story, but there's not much in the way of actual facts or truth. To address this false belief, Peter is writing in verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, We have not followed cunningly devised fables. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says here, they're not bringing them made-up stories. We didn't get together and, and, and conjure this up, some complicated and elaborate story to try to tickle your ears and, and fascinate the minds of the people. Verse 17, for he, that's Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice from heaven, from the excellent glory, that's God the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mountain. We were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We we physically saw Him. I'm not making this up. We saw it with our own eyes. I'm not making this up. I heard it with my own ears. God, in His thunderous voice, we watched as, as Jesus stood with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw with our eyes Jesus in His glory. We heard the voice of the Lord say, This is my beloved Son. Listen to what He says. We were there. We saw it happen. Verse 19, we we also have a more sure word of prophecy. If you underline in your Bible, underline that word more sure. We saw it. We witnessed it. We didn't have to make it up. We had to embellish it to, to make it more appealing or fascinating. We told you what we saw. 
And for that reason, our prophecy is more sure than what others are saying. We're just, we're just relating the, we're just giving you the account. There's no embellishment here. God's word is sure. It is solid. It is based in fact. It is not devised or contrived. It happened. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye uh, do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day is dawn and the day star rises in your hearts. Now this is important. I want you to pay careful attention to this in verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in a time, in an old time by the will of man, but the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So Peter is saying that there is no prophecy, there is no word from God that came to anyone for private interpretation. They didn't have a dream or get a feeling and then chew on it for a while and then give their own interpretation of of what happened or what it meant. Now, did God speak in dreams? Absolutely. Did he speak in feelings? Absolutely. But what Peter is saying is that they didn't chew this up and, and translate it for you. The word of God did not come to them by their own will. They didn't, it didn't come to them and for them to give their own interpretation about what happened. Holy men of God spoke the word of God as they were moved. Think about it as a log being carried along by a river. As they were moved, that's what it means. They were moved by the Holy Ghost. This is not fake We're not making this stuff up. None of the scriptures are for private interpretation of men. They are the holy word of God. I don't think that's a big deal. They are not telling you what they think. They heard it from the Lord. They were moved by the Lord and they wrote it from the Lord. There is no filter. That's what I'm getting at. There wasn't a filter. That's what Peter says. We've seen two instances in the New Testament where the scriptures claim to be the word of God. We've looked at those just now. I want to take you through several Old Testament texts. We're going to burn through them. I'm sorry for that, but I just want to make the point. I'd like to show you just how often the Bible claims to be the word of God. From the book of Exodus, chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, And the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. Thou shalt speak all that I command thee. From the book of Deuteronomy, and these are the words that Moses spoke to all the Israel as they crossed the Jordan in the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 3, And it came to pass in the fortieth year, in the eleventh month, on the first day of that month, that Moses spake to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment unto them. And again in Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3, And he humbled thee, and suffered thee unto hunger, to fed and fed thee with manna, which thou knowest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make of thee, uh, he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, you all know this one, but by every word that proceeds, where? Out of the mouth of the Lord. Listen to Isaiah the prophet in chapter 1 verse 2, hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. The Lord has spoken. In verse 10 of the first chapter, hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God. God is speaking. 
And then Jeremiah, notice what Jeremiah says in chapter 1. Listen carefully. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anatoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came. This is the word of God. Then in verse 4, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying... In verse 9, Then the Lord put forth His hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Amos the prophet, chapter 7, verse 16, Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. Hosea, chapter 1, verse 1, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea. Over and over and over and over again, the Bible claims itself to be the word of God. Just to go back to one more in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, when you hear that, when you receive the word of God that you heard from us, you received it not as the word of men, but for what it was in truth, that is the word of God. Now, I know that's a lot of passages of Scripture, but I want to pause here for a moment and just let that sink in. The Apostle Paul, saying that you received from us the Word of God, which was, the, in truth, the Word of God. When we spoke it, it was the Word of God. He would be crazy. Out of his mind, off his rocker, he would have to be insane to write something like that, unless, of course, he was, in fact, writing the very words of God. What about Peter? 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25. Seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all glory of man as the flower of grass, the grass withereth, the flower Thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Could that be any clearer? My point is this. You cannot take parts of the Bible and say this is true if you don't take the rest of it as well. There are over 1,500 instances in the Bible where the Bible itself claims to be the word of God. If that is not true, this book is a fallacious lie. You cannot separate that from the rest of the book. And if that is not true, if the Bible's claims about divine authorship are not true, the whole thing falls. Look at Jesus, for example. He makes some outrageous claims. He claims to be the Son of God. He said he would raise himself from the dead. He said that he was the bread of life. He said before Abraham was, I am. Now that is crazy talk. That's insane, unless it's true. Jesus is either a great liar, or he's absolutely insane, or he is who he says he is. He is Lord. So away with these notions that Jesus, Paul, Peter, Isaiah, Hosea, Jeremiah, and the rest of them may have been good men, may have been wise men who contributed some good philosophy to the, to the world, but that's it. No, their claims about the divine nature of their work demand that we either accept their whole argument or we throw the whole thing out. Amen. Amen. 
bitter waters and sweet waters cannot flow from the same fountain. You know, in a court of law, consistency is always important. There are other tests for truth, for sure, other than consistency. But this one thing is sure. You cannot have truth if it is inconsistent. Inconsistent is not truth. That is impossible. Logic dictates that truth demands consistency. In fact, one of the ways that investigators look to determine if someone is lying to them is to see if their story is consistent. Does it line up with itself? Does it contradict itself? Does it line up with other witnesses' stories? Does it line up with the facts that we already know? And church, to that end, the Bible is remarkably consistent. Especially considering the 1,500 years over which it was written, the number of authors, the rise and fall of many empires during that time, the widely varied locations and cultures, and all the persecutions that came to those who wrote the Scripture. And yet, it is consistent and unified. The New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament. We see Revelation giving new insights and details about the kingdom of God, the the same kingdom that we see Daniel prophesying about and giving us these images that we can't quite understand. We now see John in Revelation going deeper, giving us further information, a same unified, consistent message, thousand years apart. What a remarkable book. One central, divinely inspired, divinely moved, divinely preserved book. There are no, there are other reasons besides the two I've given you. I, I can't get to them. We'll have to pick them up next week. I do want to draw a couple of conclusions for you if I could, though. The first one is that this is foundational for moving forward. Biblical inerrancy. If the claims of the Bible are true, that it is the word of God, then of course we must believe that it comes to us without error in its original manuscripts. That only makes sense. This is where we get our doctrine called biblical inerrancy. Some may say biblical infallibility. The Bible does not contain error. If God breathed, and out of that breathing came the words of God, are you really going to tell me that along with the truth he gave us, he also gave us, mixed in with it, mistakes and errors? Is that what you're going to tell me? Are you telling me that God, who is truth, inspired men of God to write the Holy Scripture so that he could say that these are the words of God and then we discover that there are parts that are unreliable? Because of the unquestionable claims that the Bible makes about being the actual word of God, it cannot have parts that are unreliable. Because if it did, then it comes from a God that is unreliable. And he has said of himself that he is steadfast and immovable. God is not a man that he should lie. To question the scriptures, to question them and, and to say this part isn't true, that is to say that God who wrote it isn't true. And my dear friends, the Bible says this, the word of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a fire seven times. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is accurate and it is never misleading, never. We argue about its interpretation. We may debate as to what God meant when he said it. 
We may not always agree on exactly what the message was in some points, but one thing is for sure. If we understood it the way that God intended it to be understood, knowing the full context of human language and all the rest, we would know what God said is reliable and dependable. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. He said that not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the law until everything is fulfilled. He also said that scripture cannot be broken. It is an accurate word from the Lord. We cannot build on any other foundation. I don't intend to. I brought this message, and there will be a couple more on this specific subject, to clarify and solidify in your mind. I am not talking to you out of my own thoughts, my own feelings. I am standing on the unshakable word of God. So when it does not set well with you, your beef is not with me. Final conclusion. The good news is that if this Bible is true, then we have a Savior. The Scripture says that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was crucified and buried and raised again according to the Scriptures. And so what we have in our hands is a message of God. We have the assurance that we have a Christ who is actually able to save us. He is actually able to forgive our sins and to make us sons and daughters of God. Church, this book is the word of God and not the words of mere men. In it is contained the power to save, the power to forgive, freedom from bondage to sin, the means to joy and happiness, life everlasting, life abundant. If you find yourself looking for reason, if you find yourself looking for, for hope, you find yourself wondering, is anyone out there? If you find yourself searching, seek here. Look here. Meet him in the pages of this divine book. It's not just any book, church. It is his very breath, Amen. his living word to you. God has spoken. And when you open this book and you go to the pages to seek him, God is speaking. Amen. God is speaking. Find him here. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, your word is sure, it is solid, we thank you for it. I pray, I pray, oh God, that we develop a reverence for what is written in these pages. You have preserved it through centuries against attack after attack after attack. No book, no writing has been more criticized and more scrutinized and held up to more, um, more scrutiny than your holy word. And yet it has stood every attack. It has stood every advance of the enemy. Father, it remains true and sure. You were right when you said everything will fade, but your word remains. So, Father, I pray that you develop in us a reverence and a respect for it so that when we go to it, we go to it seeking to be changed. We go to it wanting to be challenged we go to it begging you to to move upon us to do better father keep us preserve us as we go our separate ways keep us safe and bring us back at the appointed time in jesus holy name we pray amen